Father, you are um, the creator God whose word echoes through all creation. The sustainer of all things, the, the very fabric of the universe held together by your decree. And yet you chose to reveal yourself uh, first in the law and the prophets and then in Jesus and then through your apostles to speak to us in a way that we might know you better. And as we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as we consider his words, help us to listen to your spirit at work. May we see him, know him, desire to be more like him. For those who have gathered with us that do not yet um, take him as Lord and Savior, we ask that your hand would be upon them, um, that your spirit would speak and move. Lord, that they might come to a place of putting their faith in you and publicly declaring it in baptism. We ask for those who are believers um, for decades that your spirit would speak as new and as fresh as it did the first time that his voice echoed in our hearts. We pray that we, above all things, would see and glorify Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his holy name, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, In the bulletin, there's a a little uh, handout thing. Um, I thought it would be useful um, to kind of see in as visually as possible, how the structure of this passage works. Uh, One of the very interesting things about the way that Matthew writes is the way that he leans into language. Um, He seems to use language that, um, that resonates. I think that's the best way that I can say it. It, It's, there are words that have kind of, they would be translated into English in multiple ways. And he kind of uses those words to kind of push us along and develop our thinking. Um, When he's, when he's dealing with Jesus's uh, sermon on the Mount, um, there is a lot of this where you will get kind of a word or an idea or an image very early in the sermon, which then comes back at the end. Now, Jesus didn't give this message in Greek. He gave it in, in either uh, Aramaic or a, a Galilean dialect of, of Hebrew. And so, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, when when we're reading through Matthew, the Greek style of the book of Matthew that was written in Greek The narrative is well written, but when we get to moments where Jesus is speaking, the style elevates. There's a vocabulary shift. There's a change that happens. And it's very clear that they, although they want to, Matthew wanted to be very clear when he was writing just the narrative of the gospel, when it comes to the very words of Jesus, he is very, very careful to try to convey the same kind of flow and rhythm that Jesus would have had when speaking. And as I mentioned before, because of the way that disciples work in the ancient world, uh, this is a message that Matthew would have heard probably hundreds of times in the few years that he was with Jesus. Jesus would have continually been reciting these passages to them. In a few weeks, we're going to get to uh, the Lord's Prayer. 
And this prayer um, was not just not it's not just central to Christian worship. It's it was central to, I think, Jesus's prayer life. And so the disciples probably heard Jesus praying a variation of the Lord's Prayer, that same template, probably multiple times a day as he prayed. And, and I think in some ways we, we lose that enriching um, flavor of those passages when we recite them without thinking about just how heavy they are. Um, but then we also lose it by not reciting them, so there's always a balance to be, to be made. Anyway, in this passage, um, I, I, the, the handout says a close reading of Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It is very easy for us as we read a passage of Scripture to just read it straight, line after line after line, column, 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 and not notice the language that's being used. And so I structured it out for this so that we could read it, and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about this. This is not really the primary thing that I'm doing, but I want you to, to kind of see how he structures this. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Uh, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish uh, or to tear down or break apart the law and the pro- law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to get into the the big idea of what Jesus is doing here, but I, I want you to kind of notice when you read this passage, you'll notice on the right side there in the smaller print, there are, there are a couple of very clearly not English words, right? Um, these are the Greek words that Matthew chooses to, um, to convey these ideas, and the word to abolish in verse 17 um, is kataluo, which means to break apart, to, to pull apart. It is the word that would later be used in later literature to describe the destruction of the Jerusalem temple as the the actual uh, rocks of the temple were pried apart and thrown down. It is kataluo, breaking apart. So I have not, I, you think, he says, do not think that I have come to break apart the law or the prophets, that I have come to destroy or destroy, uh, br- uh, um, uh, tear down the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And the Greek word fulfill, it means to fill, like to fill a cup, to fill something to, to uh, its brim. I've come to do everything within the container of the law or prophets. I've come to fill up the law, to fulfill the law. Um, and you will notice when you go down to verse 19, and there's a little bracket there that shows you, it says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and the word there is luo, kata luo and luo, those are, that's the same word with a little prefix. It's, prefix, um, it's kind of like, um, like do and redo, all right, um, it, or um, to breakable and unbreakable. We add a little prefix at the beginning to change the meaning of the word. But in this case, um, it is essentially the same idea to loosen, to break down. Um, whoever releases one, relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that's tied into there. 
Um, and then he says, whoever does them, this is uh, the word poleo, which can mean to do or to make or to build. Um, and in a lot of languages, there's actually a word that kind of does this. Um, in Spanish, it's hacer. Um, in English, we don't really have a word do make, but, but a lot of European languages have it. Um, and it's the same idea here that it is to do or to make or to build or to, um, to put together. He says, so whoever does this um, will be called great in the kingdom. So he's kind of contrasting this idea of tearing down and building up. Uh, and then, um, and we're going to talk about the rest of this, but what this fits in with, which is really interesting, is at the end of this sermon, Jesus will talk quite a bit about building houses. And he talks about building a house on sand and building a house on rock, building a house that will fall down, which will break apart, and building a house which will stay together. Um, and so this imagery is really tied into how he's going to be speaking. Now, overall, in the book of Matthew, what's really interesting is when Jesus uses these words, when Matthew translates Jesus' words here, um, elsewhere, he is talking about the destruction of the temple, which will actually happen in A.D. 70. It happens about 40 years after Jesus. And, he, and so the temple, his prophecy, his, his, uh, his foretelling that this temple would be destroyed, Jesus kind of uses the temple as a stand-in for the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets and the temple are married together. Um, we, uh, uh, Ray mentioned, by the way, the Bible studies going through the book of Hebrews, um, and undoubtedly the people that are in the study I am in are getting tired of me saying this, but the theology of Hebrews and the narrative of Matthew are tied together. Um, they're the same, it's the same community, the same group of Christians, not necessarily the same individuals, but the same beliefs, these people who had come out of Judaism and were now finding their way as Christians, that Matthew's gospel follows that train and Hebrews, the doctrine of Hebrews follows that train. Hebrews is a theological discourse. It's not really a letter. Um, it's a theological discussion of some ideas and one of the things that's really emphasized in hebrews uh and and the flip side of what ray said about hebrews jesus being the key of hebrews uh the flip side of that is that the law and he says it several times the law and the prophets are actually a shadow of good things yet to come that the law and the prophets the old testament were a shadow that jesus was the substance um and there's a whole uh, rhetoric about that, but I don't want to get in too deep into that. So I wanted you to kind of look at this, and, I, and then I wanted to just make the point, and down at the bottom there's a little underline said, this is not secret knowledge. Now why do I make that point? Because sometimes preachers act like they discovered something no one had ever seen before. And I was like, well, you know, I did seminary and took Greek, and so I'm so much smarter than the rest of you. Um, this is written in common language for the people who would have read it. They would have understood right away what Jesus is talking about. They would have immediately seen this, this imagery. As easily as you understand the words that I'm saying, they would have understood reading or, or hearing Jesus speak, they would have understood what he was talking about. Um, and most of this is okay. But I want to I dwell on the very controversial part of this, the part of this passage that really sets Jesus apart, and is his relationship to the law. 
his relationship to the the religion of the day. Now, I'm not going to say that his relationship to the Old Testament. I'm going to make a very clear distinction. That Jesus, in many ways, is going to be talking about, he's going to use the term law, he's going to talk about uh, teachers and things, and he is talking about the religion of his day, often. He is not necessarily talking about the Old Testament. And we need to make a distinction there. Because there are many theologians who go along and say, the Old Testament doesn't matter. How do you know it doesn't matter? Because it's called old. Right? Right? Um, they have this mentality that the Hebrew scriptures, they, they have no significance to us. We can just, just kind of chuck those. And the only thing they might do is they might give us some imagery that we can use and understand the New Testament. Jesus, when Jesus deals with Judaism and Pharisees and Sadducees and all the groups that Jesus deals with, he is dealing with their attitude toward the Hebrew scriptures. He's not dealing with the Hebrew scriptures themselves. So I want to I make sure we understand Jesus does not throw away the Bible. And, and you're going to understand why I, I say that. So let's just look at verse 17, that last statement. He says, don't think I have come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. This is Jesus' controversial statement. Rabbis and priests, they might come along and say, let me interpret the scriptures for you. Let me explain to you the law and the prophets. Or they might say, let me, let me clarify. Or, or let, me, let me show you what this means or the significance of it. But no rabbi would be brash enough. No rabbi would, would dare to say that he would fulfill the law and the prophets. This is Jesus's, the first uh, kind of ripples of Jesus's uh, different way of approaching scripture. Now with hindsight, we look at it and we say Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. He's, he, he died, he was buried, he was raised again, he ascended to heaven. We go, of course Jesus has a different attitude to the Hebrew scriptures. But you have to remember that the people that Jesus was talking to didn't know that about him. In fact, it was the farthest thing, farthest thing from their mind that somebody might be the son of God, dead, buried, resurrected. That was not how the world worked. So Jesus says to them, look, I haven't come to tear down the law and the prophets. I haven't come to destroy them. I haven't come to break it up. And implied in that is you can do that on your own. You're pretty good at that. I have come to fulfill. I have come to fill it up. I have come to, 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 to make it full. How many of you enjoy the adventure of uh, blowing up balloons. Isn't that great? How many of you have ever had to try to blow up a something large like a pool toy without a pump? Isn't that just the best experience? Somehow they managed to make it so no matter how much air you blow in, twice as much comes out when you take a breath. You work on it for an hour and a half and it's kind of sort of inflated enough that you think the kids won't notice, you just throw it in the pool. All right. Um, we, 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 we like to have things full, you know, so um, I'll never forget the first time I had uh, one of those, uh, uh, you know, the inflatable beds, you know, and I had a hand pump. You inflate one of those. It's like, huh, you know, it's going to take forever. So, and then we got an electric one and you just like <laughs> done. Nice. Then you forget, you put it in the wrong way, you pull it out, it deflates, you got to do it again. But, you know, that moment when you realize, hey, you can fill it up pretty fast, 
And when you actually, if you've ever laid on a, um, all right, I know this is, you guys have all had this experience. You, you, you're sleeping at somebody's house. They say, we've got an air mattress. You go, oh boy, this is going to be an adventure. You start out in the, at night, you get on the air mattress. It's okay. At about 1.45 in the morning, you're on the floor. It's no longer full, and now you have to debate with yourself, do I get off, get, I get off of the air mattress, try to find the pump, refill it? Do I just sleep on the floor and deal with the pain tomorrow? Um, why am I even friends with this person in the first place? Why don't they have a guest room? Uh, you know, you go through all of these questions. Something that is full is full, and something that is not full is noticeably not full. And the gospel before Jesus was noticeably not full. Or, I'm sorry, the law and the prophets before Jesus were noticeably not full. How do I know this? Because it's impossible to get all the rules right all the time. There's just a lot about the gospel that's really, or the law and the, gospel, law and the prophets, it's really hard. Did you know that in the law, of the pro, law and the prophets, you're not allowed to wear clothes made of two fabrics? Every single one of us should look at our shirts because I guarantee we wear non-kosher shirts. Did you know that in the Law and the Prophets, cheeseburgers are forbidden? You cannot eat. The, the, the law says that you should not cook the kid in the mother's milk. Therefore, cheese and meat cannot be served together. So if you go to Israel, there are no cheeseburgers. There's also no meat on pizza, which is just wrong. <laughs> when you go to a pizza hut in Israel and they ask if you want carrots and, and corn, now my wife, she'd be like, mmm. I'm like, where's the pepper? And pepperoni is non-kosher for like four different reasons. Um, but, you know, it's like I want, I want meat on my pizza, right? It is almost impossible to fulfill all of the law because some of it deals with involuntary behavior. I mean, there are rules in the law about where you dig your latrine trenches. And we can't follow those laws because we have indoor plumbing. The law, it, you can just tell it's, it's not full. It's almost impossible. And Jesus makes this point. He says... You, you choose whether you wish to just throw away the revelation of God or to see how it can be fulfilled in the work of God. All right? And when he says, I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Some people read that and they say, therefore, we have to continue to follow the law. But Jesus actually has a finishing statement of that that's worth noting. He says, uh, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And I suspect his point is, I will finish, I will fill, I will complete. We do not have the right to throw the Bible away throw the Old Testament away. Jesus says, I will fill this up. I will complete it. And once I complete it, it will be beautiful and glorious and whole. Now, I could spend forever there, but I want to talk about the three reactions that Jesus then lists to the law. 
So we have this incomplete law, right? This not full law. All right, and Jesus is going to fulfill the law, but in the meantime, he says, this is how we have, this is the attitudes that I observe, two particular attitudes, and he's actually criticizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this, the two prominent Jewish sects. The first one, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was the Pharisees. Now, we talk about Pharisees. We tend to use the word Pharisee to describe somebody who has a bunch of rules and all this stuff. But actually, the Pharisees were the theological liberals of their day. They had an oral law that allowed them to interpret the written law pretty much however they felt like interpreting it. And they would read a passage in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They would read a passage, and then they would sit and they would debate, what does this mean? What is the principle of this? How does this convey? What can we do? And, and where are the rules and stuff? So they read about how, long, how much work you can do on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Well, the argument is, well, you've got to be able to, you've got to, be able to move around. You can't just lay in bed in the Sabbath day. So no work doesn't really mean no work. No work means no, means no extra work. Well, what's regular work, regular work, get out of bed, walk around, make coffee, you know, those kind of things, you know, well, they weren't making coffee, but you know what I mean, um, you know, and you could, you could do the basic things, and you know, you could probably walk a little way from your house to go to the well, or, or to fellowship, or chat with somebody, and they, they kind of create this idea of a Sabbath day's journey, and I've mentioned this before, then they talked about, well, so Sabbath day journey is how far you can walk from your house, then they started to debate about what constitutes your house, now, again, this would seem pretty simple, but they came up with this idea, well, what if we need to take a journey on the Sabbath day? What constitutes a house? Well, what constitutes a house is anywhere you have a possession. Oh, well, if I have a possession, then what I can do is I can just carry a pocket full of handkerchiefs. I can walk as far as I'm allowed to walk on the Sabbath, drop a handkerchief. Now, I, that's my house. Now I can walk that far again. And I can just continue to do that all the way to wherever I need to go, and I, I haven't broken the law. You see what I mean about relaxing the commandments? We think of the Pharisees as being very strict and very demanding, but actually they were the ones who were trying to figure out ways to get around the rules. They were kind of massaging the conversation. I mean, anyone who has a teenage child knows what it means to massage the rules. I was like, well, you didn't say this word. You said this word, and so I figured it was okay for me to do this. You know, it's like, don't go in the living room and play video games. And you see that they're playing video games in the guest room. You're like, what you, well, you said we couldn't play video games in the living room. You didn't say anything about the guest room, so we just picked up the box and took it to the living room, the guest room. You know, that kind of stuff. I, I was not that kind of a child at all. So there's, there's those who relax the commandments. And he says those are going to be the least of the kingdom. Now, that moment that he says that, I guarantee the Sadducees in the crowd were like, ha, told you, he doesn't like the Pharisees. He's not like them. Because they relaxed the commandments. He called them the least of the kingdom. And so we must be the best. Now, I actually, and, and you could disagree with me, but I do not think that Jesus is then saying, but if you follow the law, if you follow the commandments, you're right with God, all right? But the next line, he says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I would conjecture to you, and you can explore the gospel of this, anytime Jesus tells somebody that they will be great, he is not approving of their behavior. He, every time he says, you will be great, usually what he's saying is, you are so deluded that you think this is going to get you on God's good side. 
So the Sadducees, who were the other Jewish sect, they were the hyper-literalist fundamentalists of their day. They rejected the prophets and the writings, the, the, most of the, what we call the Old Testament. They believed only in following the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and if it wasn't in there, it didn't matter. So they rejected the idea of the resurrection. They rejected the idea of, of most of Judaism. They, they, they had very strict rules. They said, and we can just follow this. We've narrowed the set of rules down as tight as it can possibly be. And if we do that, we are in good shape with God. So we had one group who's trying to loosen the rules so that kind of make it willy-nilly so that they can say that they're okay with God. And then you've got another group who's sitting there going, let's condense the rules down. Let's reduce it beyond the minimum complexity. Let's reject the idea of God revealing through the prophets. Let's just chuck that out and let's just keep with the law. And if you do this, then you're going to be great. And so you've got two extremes. And I think Jesus is actually listing two extremes in their attitude toward the law and the prophets. The, the, the ones who relaxed everything and those who were like super rigid about a very small set of rules. This is the way that we go. Um, and there was kind of this, this very uh, far extremes, this dichotomy. Then Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how it works. In verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, well, those guys, they're the least in the kingdom, right? They, you know, he says this thing about the Pharisees, the Sadducees are all excited. Then he turns and says to the Sadducees, and you'll be great, won't you? He says, but unless you can maintain a level of righteousness that is greater than all of these religious leaders, you will never enter the kingdom. In other words, your self-centered approach to be great in the kingdom, set up a set of rules that, you know, that are so loose that you can interpret them how you are or be so rigid on such a small set of rules so that you can call yourself. This is all about our attitude toward the law and winning God's favor. Because on this side, those who loosen the law, the loosen the rules, they're the ones who are saying, well, let's just do our best and hope that it all works out. Um, I have, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we have these conversations with um, some extreme groups, right? Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, believe that only 144,000 people will actually be in the kingdom. Now, the rest of us get to kind of be there as servants and lesser people, but there's 144,000 special people. How do you know you're going to be one of the 144,000? Well, you hope that you're good enough. Right now, they actually believe that the cutoffs already passed, and the 144,000 have already lived, and you, the rest of us are just, you know, we're second rate, we're servants, we got no choice. You either be servants or you're completely destroyed. No options. All right, um, but we look at that. But hey, there are people in every denomination, and I'm not narrowing, narrowly picking one, but there are people in every Christian denomination who think that they're just going to do the best they can with their own interpretation and hope they get in. I mean, don't we have, we have, we all have that relative. We all have that person. And if you don't have that person, you're probably that person. Um, 
We, we all have that person in our lives who their, their idea is, well, if I just do enough good things, Jesus will, God will notice me and I'll get into heaven. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have all the people who are like, I have everything in order, nothing is wrong, I have everything under, I've got it all under control. What about this? I'm not going to deal with that. I just want to, I've got it all under control. And they, they become super narrow-minded about their controls on everything. This side, we, we might take to this side, we might go this side, the extreme Mennonites, the, the, the Amish and the really extreme sects of people who lock into a particular version of Christianity with no deviation, no, no variation. This is the way it is. This is the only righteous way. We have to follow this righteous way in order to get God to get us into heaven. Jesus says both are wrong. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds. Now, it's really, really interesting, and I, I can't get into all of this, but he says this in the singular, unless your righteousness, singular, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the grammar is, unless you are more righteous than all of the scribes and the Pharisees. Unless you can be more righteous than every righteous person that has ever walked on the face of the earth, you will never enter the kingdom of of heaven. See, on the one side we had loosen the law, the other side um, maintain as much holiness as we can and then we'll get in. And Jesus' point is have you ever considered that maybe that was not the point of the law in the first place? That the law was never about giving you a set of rules and a bag of tools that would get you into the kingdom of heaven. Maybe there's something more. Jesus reads the law as it is something to be fulfilled in what he would accomplish. He does not say the law remains in effect he says that once it is completed, once it is filled, once it is accomplished in his person and his actions, something greater than the law saves us. Before Abraham was, I am, he says in the book of John. Uh, Jesus was there before the law. He has always been greater than it. And the completion of the law in Jesus is not just that Jesus did everything right and so saves us, but rather He, the lawgiver, becomes the justification of those who are under the law. That's grace. That's grace. You say, why would God create a bunch of impossible rules? Maybe, just maybe so we would get a hit in the ego and realize we can't save ourselves. Everyone's like, well, the rules in the Bible are so hard. Yes, they're hard. It's on purpose. We're not dealing with what you can handle. We're dealing with the capacity of God. And in order for us to understand how much we need to be saved, maybe we need to realize just how bad a job we do saving ourselves. 
Maybe we need to see the absolute standard of holiness. Maybe we need to see the absolute standard of righteousness. Maybe we need to be confronted with our inadequacy so we can trust His infinite capacity. I wrote down, as Ray was talking, I wrote down the line, sin sticks. Because on practical terms, no matter how good and righteous you are, sin sticks. That's why we need Jesus. You say, you say well, there were people in the Old Testament that were saved by following the law. Were there? I'd encourage you to join one of the Bible studies in the book of Hebrews because the author of Hebrews has something to say about those who were righteous under the law. You say, well, they were saved by they were saved by doing sacrifices in the Old Testament. Were they? Were they? Or was it in the faith in the lawgiver that saved them? And that the actions of obedience were just a reflection of their faith. Just leaving it out there for consideration to torture the Bible study teachers with on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Were they? See, the, the mentality, when we talk at Bedford Road about creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together, there is a very good reason that Jesus is at the middle of that conversation. It's the, there's a very good reason why we, as followers of Christ, our job is just to create environments, to create space where people can meet Jesus. Because if you come to church thinking that coming to church is going to make you a Christian, you're wrong. If you think doing all the right things is going to earn favor with Jesus, you're wrong. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of every scribe and Pharisee, every religious person that has ever lived. If Jesus were speaking today and he were speaking in Central Asia, he might say, unless your piety is greater than the Dalai Lama. If he was in Italy speaking to a Roman Catholic, he might say, or just generally, he might say, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pope and the Cardinals combined. And, the, and every single one of us will go, oh, I, I mean, oh, that's asking a lot. Yes, it is asking the impossible of us to have enough faith to enter the kingdom. And that's why we trust Jesus. Jesus opens the door for us to say, it is not about creating a set of tools and a bag of rules that I can do enough to hopefully get in or I can have the rules to be able to get in. No matter which extreme of that we go to, we're going to fail and all it takes is one failure to disqualify us or we can trust the one who came to fill the law and the prophets. He says, I don't need to destroy anything. Now this is, this is cool. I'll leave you with this. I don't need to destroy anything. I'm the one that wrote it. Why would I destroy it? That's really what he's saying. He's saying the law, its purpose was to point you to me. Why would I want to get rid of it? I want to keep it. I just want to fulfill it. And then you're going to be able to look back at it and say, wow, this was all about Jesus.
This was all about Jesus from the beginning. It was all about him. Jesus doesn't need to replace the law. Christianity doesn't need to replace Israel. We don't have to play all those games because Jesus fulfills it all. Jesus is the perfect law. Jesus is the perfect righteousness. Jesus is the perfect Israel that Israel could not be. Jesus is the head of the church because the church fails, but the head is perfect. Jesus is all that is required of us to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we can enter through no other means than faith in him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher. All things are sustained by you, and without you, nothing can be. We place our faith and trust in you as your people. Help us to renew our commitment, our faith, to you being greater your righteousness for our failure, your truth for our weakness. In all things, to see you as the fulfillment of expectation and longing, revealed in the law, revealed in our hearts, revealed in our sin. May we individually renew our commitment to you. Lord, may we invite others to meet you, to be transformed by you. You are our everything. And Jesus, it is to you and only to you we devote ourselves as we go forth to be the church that walks in your name. My brothers and sisters,